Hot Take is brought to you by Lomi. Uh, Lomi wants you to know that I was really, really bad at composting when you had to get worms in a bin and let them live in your kitchen and eat your food. Um, I, I I keep having to admit this in public that I dropped some worms off underneath a bridge in the snow. I don't know if they lived or not, but probably not. Anyway, now I have a Lomi. <laughs> <laughs> Lomi allows me to turn my food scraps into dirt with the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns scraps into dirt in under four hours. There's no smell when it runs, and it's really, really quiet. I love my Lomi. It's great. Since I got my Lomi, I throw out way less garbage, and that means it's not going to landfills and producing methane, right, Amy? That's right. Mm -hmm. Nice one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Instead, I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants or throw at passersby outside. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Elon Musk was in New Orleans recently. And I oh had God. half a mind to head on down to Frenchman Street and, you know, just see if I could find him. Um, with the, with a pail of loamy dirt? No, I, I, no, no. <laughs> I just wanted to talk. I just wanted to talk. Uh, anyway, if so you good. want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash hot and use the promo code hot to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash hot and use promo code hot at checkout. Food waste is gross. Lomi is your solution. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself, too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Hey, hot cakes. Welcome to Hot Take. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Mariani Hegler. This week, we're going to be talking to an intrepid Indigenous journalist, Rebecca Nagel. Yes, a second timer. She's a repeat guest. Um, Rebecca has been working for the past few years, several years, really, to 
figure out what's behind a whole bunch of cases that are targeting the Indian Child Welfare Act. I actually got a chance to work with her on that last year for her show, This Land. It's super, super, super interesting and has a lot to do with tribal sovereignty more broadly, which has everything to do with climate. So we're excited to talk to her about all of those intersections. Yeah, this this week is going to be exciting because Amy and Rebecca know a ton about courts and climate, and I don't. So it's going to (laughs) be them nerding out and me asking (laughs) clarifying questions, which is one of my favorite things to do. So I'm excited. Um, We also have some bittersweet news to share. That's true. Hot take um, is coming to the end of its road. I guess you could say that the flame has gone out on hot take. (laughs) What what are you thinking? (laughs) This is our last month. This is not our last episode. Um, We've got two more coming out after this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I said, it's, it's bittersweet, but... We're both really proud of the work that we've done with this podcast. And with the time we have left, we will keep bringing you quality programming about climate. And we'll see where things go from there. Yeah. Right, Amy? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. This is it. After uh, the end of 2022, the flame will be extinguished. No, I'm just kidding. will never be extinguished look we're not leaving the climate movement we're not leaving the planet we'll still right. be here it's we true. just won't be in your podcast feed like this yeah. so that's right that's right um we are grateful for all of you who have supported us over the years of doing this podcast um mm-hmm. and yeah you'll always be hotcakes to us it's true hotcakes forever all right with that i think it's time mary yep it's time to talk about climate All right. Rebecca Nagel, welcome back to Hot Take. We're so glad to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. It's been, what, like two years since we had you on? Because it was like deep lockdown. That's crazy. When you were on the first time. It's been a minute. It's been a minute. I know. And then when it's COVID years, it's like, Lord knows how long that was. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So I imagine not much has happened in your world since the last time we talked. (laughs) <laughs> okay that says a lot that says a lot good one, good one. <laughs> oh man yeah we're super excited to talk to you rebecca because of all this reporting that's come out uh from you over the last couple of years about this big case that's at the supreme court um Brackeen. So I wanted, I, I think actually like it'd be helpful because I think last time you were on, we didn't get into this at all. So maybe it'd be helpful for you to lay some groundwork and just kind of talk us through what is the Indian Child Welfare Act and what what was this case about? Yeah, absolutely. And it should be noted that um, all of the wonderful reporting was also done by Amy Westervelt. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah yeah so we got to make the the podcast with amy and critical frequency and it was it was a dream team it's like the only like weekly work call that like once it was over i missed (laughs) 
I know. That's I true. Like, I still want to be on that conference call once a week. It's like never it's happened. True. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We did. We had such a, this was this land season two and we had such an incredible team. It was an all women team and it was fucking awesome. I swear. I was like, oh man, everybody should work on a project like this. It's like, yeah, it it's was, the best way. It was very yeah. dreamy. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, co-reported with Amy Westervel and Maddie Stone and Martha Troyan and just an amazing Sarah Venturi, like amazing, amazing, amazing group of people. Um, yeah. yeah, so the Indian Child Welfare Act uh, was passed in 1978 by Congress. Um, at the time, in the late 60s, there had been this big national survey that found 25 to 35%, so about a third of all native children had been removed from their family and tribes. There were a couple things going on. Um, there was a actual literal federal program um, to remove native children and place them with white families mm-hmm. called the Indian Adoption Project. Um, but what was actually happening in higher numbers was that state agencies, actually after having spent like decades refusing to provide any kind of social programs or social welfare to Native Americans, including just like social security, um, state child welfare agencies um, were removing Native kids at really, really high rates. And for innocuous reasons, like being raised with a grandparent um, instead of by a biological parent. And so um, when ICWA passed, Basically, what it did is it does a bunch of different stuff to try and prevent those abuses from happening before. And so it's interesting because in this litigation, these like really, really small aspects of the law um, get harped on. But the law does a ton of different things. Like one of the things it does is if a Native parent relinquishes their parental rights, it has to happen in front of a judge. It can't be some kind of back room lawyer deal where they just a native Mm. parent signs something and they don't understand what they're signing because that was happening Mm. um you know if a try if a child uh lives on the reservation then the case actually goes to tribal court and tribes have jurisdiction so really the law i think of it as like a set of guardrails um to make it harder to separate native kids from their family and from their tribes And in those proceedings, it, you know, um, beefs up the power and the rights of the Native parents, the tribe, and then really seeks to protect the Native child. Mm. Yeah. I think the first time I ever talked to you about this um, was when this new law firm had just come on board taking all of these cases pro bono. And I asked, I was like, what's the law firm? And you were like, Gibson Dunn? Have you heard of them? And I went, oh, my God head is exploding because this is a law firm that you know represents a lot of the oil and gas industry they also represent quite a few large casino clients um so all of a sudden i i think you know a lot of red flags were like wait a minute why is this huge corporate law firm getting involved in a case that would seem like it has absolutely nothing to do with them um what did we find rebecca what yeah what did you find? <laughs> why, why are they yeah. there <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we found a couple things. I mean, one is that Gibson Dunn, as Amy, as you mentioned, is heavily involved in oil and gas. And they were actually um, the uh, the company that um, they, they represented the company behind the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, 
And the other thing that's noteworthy about Gibson Dunn is that um, the lawyer uh, that is representing the individual plaintiffs pro bono um, has made the exact same arguments that he's making in this case to undo the Indian Child Welfare Act um, here on behalf of non-Native foster parents, he's made those same legal arguments on behalf of non-Native casino developers to attack Indian gaming. Um, And so that is kind of like gloves off, like really transparent, (laughs) like they're just literally porting the (laughs) arguments um, and just swapping out uh, kids for casinos. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's gross. It's really wild. It is gross. And and also, I think it's it's very clever because family law cases are messy and people get really distracted by the the details of like, you know, what was going on with this family or that family and where should this child live and, you know, all of these kinds of things, right? Instead of understanding the basis of the arguments being made here and what the, the broader impacts are, both on these kids in particular, but on kind of much larger issues too. So yeah. uh, what are the arguments that are being made in Bracky? Yeah. Yeah. So there's like three big legal arguments being made in the case. Um, two, which I'll focus on because those two are the scariest for um, tribal sovereignty and what people call federal Indian law or title 25, but it's basically just the whole section of U.S. law that deals with the relationship between the U.S. federal government and tribal nations. Um, And so the first argument that's really scary uh, for tribes is that the non-Native foster parents argue that ICWA discriminated against them, that basically Mm -hmm. they experience racial discrimination because according to ICWA, if a child can't be reunified with their parents. Um, ICWA sets out placement preferences of where that child should go next. So the first placement preference is actually just extended members of that child's extended family. The second placement preference is other members of that child's tribe. And then the third placement preference is any member of a federally recognized tribe. Um, And so, and that, like that third placement preference got a lot of airtime in the Mm. oral arguments was just frustrating because it actually wasn't used in any of these cases. What's actually extraordinary about the individual plaintiffs making this argument is that for the most part, when we actually investigated the underlying custody cases, not only did these foster parents win custody, but they won custody actually over blood relatives that um, at the time also really wanted to raise the children but nonetheless um they are the opposite of being discriminated (laughs) quite the opposite i mean i would argue that that's like another reason that the family law angle has been very um convenient is that it's easy to obscure the underlying facts of the custody cases because those cases are sealed and so it's really hard to track down what actually happened um but we Mm. did (laughs) and it was very and it's not the story they're telling in court surprise surprise yeah Yeah. shockingly yeah um yeah and so that argument is scary because um a bunch of court decisions 
um, have said that Native Americans, when you're talking about, you know, there is a racial group of Native folks in the U.S., but when you're talking about tribes and tribal citizens, that's not a racial group, that's a political group. And it includes some folks who do have Native ancestry. It actually also includes some people who don't have Native ancestry. And it's not about race, it's about that tribe's sovereign relationship to the U.S. federal government, and then its inherent right to govern itself and set citizenship and all that stuff. And so a whole host of laws apply only to federally recognized tribes and our citizens, um, from gaming to healthcare, um, environmental laws, like all sorts of stuff. And so the fear is, is that if ICWA is racial discrimination, well, then what about Indian health services? If ICWA is discrimination, what about gaming regulations that allow tribes to operate casinos where non-native casino developers can't? You know, what racial group, quote unquote, racial group in the United States has their own land, has their own water rights, has their own environmental regulations, their own government, their own police force, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, if the Supreme Court ruled on those grounds, it could be like a bomb going off in the arena of federal Indian law. Mm-hmm. Um, the second big argument that they're making is that they're trying to say that Congress, they're making like a Article One argument, basically saying that Congress doesn't have the authority to pass this type of law in the first place. That you know, this is just Congress stepping out of out of its bounds. And so, one of the people or entities suing the federal government is the state of Texas. And so, it's basically like a classic states' rights argument of like you can't tell us what to do. But what's what unique about federal Indian law is. Um, is that Congress actually has like a lot of authority when it comes to tribes. It's actually called plenary authority, which is like a really fancy legal term for saying like a fuck ton, you know, like it's basically (laughs) just like Congress gets to do what it wants, you know? And, um, and so what they're trying to do is like seek to limit that and say like, no, Congress can only legislate around tribes around like these like very specific things. And so again, it's just like another way to chip away at laws that Congress has passed um, that govern tribal sovereignty. Yeah, I, I want to go back to what you were saying about racial category versus a political category. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what those distinctions are and how does blood quantum play into all of this? Yeah, absolutely. And so um, the way that blood quantum factors in actually depends like 100% on that tribe. So blood quantum was something that was imposed on tribes um, really through the termination era. So there was this period of time where Congress was trying to get rid of tribes. And there was this idea that um, if like if they imposed blood quantum on tribes, like eventually um, people like tribes would just vanish because people wouldn't have the requisite blood quantum. Um, fast forward to today. Um, you know, I don't know what percentage it is, but like some, some tribes, plenty of tribes still have blood quantum and it can be a way to measure, you know, how close people are um, still connected to their families and their culture or their land. And a lot of tribes don't have any blood quantum at all. Um, and it's just a hundred percent up to that tribe. Um, and usually like blood quantum is not the only citizenship requirement, even when for the tribes that do have blood quantum, um, there's usually often other criteria, um, and it's one of many. And so, um, yeah, so tribal citizenship is like any other government, you know, tribes decide who is eligible for citizenship and who is not. 
Um, and so all of the laws that flow um, from Congress to that apply to federally recognized tribes and their citizens, um, yeah, flow flow through that citizenship. And so, and that's kind of one way, like, because people don't understand how blood quantum works and it's this kind mm-hmm. of like hot button thing. They really try to manipulate it. Like w- one of the legal arguments that they make is that ancestry is like a proxy for race because mm-hmm. a lot of times tribes will like, if you're, um, if, you know, if you can trace back to an ancestor at a certain time, you know, or usually like you enroll through your parents, um, which is like, you know, it's like, if you're, um, your parents are like ex- expats living in France, like that's how you're also mm-hmm. a citizen mm-hmm. of the U.S., you know, like it's just mm-hmm. like, right. like a lot of like, yeah, so they're trying to say, and then people just try, um, and either like in these cases talk about, like if the kids are higher blood quantum, they make like a whole big thing about how the tribe requires blood quantum. So obviously this is race. And then if the children involved in the cases are low blood quantum, they also try to like make a lot of hay out of that and like imply that it's like ridiculous that this law would apply to a child with such low blood quantum. So they really try and like have it both ways in the way that blood quantum comes up in these cases. Mm. It's so, it's so interesting. And uh scary so um rebecca you were actually at the supreme court for for arguments in this case right you you went in person yeah i how um, was it it was it was a really intense day it was it was an intense and it was a long day um there were a ton of tribal leaders there um that was like, it was neat to see like everyone who had come and kind of talk to people and see why people came. So it was a lot of people who actually like work with ICWA. So a lot of people who are, you know, the ICWA coordinator for their tribe or work in family law in some capacity, a lot of native lawyers, a lot of tribal leaders, whether, um, you know, chiefs or um, chair people or um, council members, um, I met some native foster, um, adults like who had been in foster care at the youth. So people and adoptees, like a lot of people who are there for personal reasons too. And so that was really interesting to see everybody who came out to support ICWA. I mean, the actual oral arguments, um, I mean, I think there, we, it was better. <laughs> it was better than the last time ICWA went in front of the Supreme Court. There was an ICWA case in 2013, and the oral arguments in that case were an absolute dumpster fire. Um, and so this case, you know, you had four justices who clearly um, knew the law and were really pushing really hard on Mr. McGill, the lawyer for the individual plaintiffs and the Solicitor General of Texas, and also like kind of catching them in these like hilarious moments like I think it was Kagan there was like one moment where Kagan basically um got Texas to admit that like a lot of the information in their um their briefs were like legally irrelevant and he was like well yeah that stuff is just atmosphere <laughs> so <laughs> um, there were like moments like that that were like okay yes like there are justices that are like very much calling out the bullshit and I would say that that was like Gorsuch, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson Um, but that's only four right and so um, then on the other side you know Alito 
and Kavanaugh were making um, comments that to me were like very dog whistly, like Kavanaugh asked like more than once, um, you know, a question around like, well, could we pass a law that only like white people could adopt white children or only Asian people could adopt oh, Asian boy. children? Alito oh. made this insane comment that, um, that like somehow like you're, it was like implying that Europeans like brought peace when they colonized this continent but he was talking about how before (laughs) europeans arrived all the indigenous nations were at war with each Uh, other and i was like i don't i don't um (laughs) i have so many questions and i'm afraid of all of the answers (laughs) yeah so it was a mixed it was a mixed it was a mixed bag. Um, I would say that Barrett, I think I think Amy Coney Barrett is the swing vote. Mm, that's terrifying. No? That's, but that's really interesting because she's also, I mean, to me, I've every time I look at this case, I'm like, Amy Coney Barrett is Jennifer Brackett. <laughs> like, yeah. she's a white, super, she's not evangelical, she's Catholic, but otherwise she's a white, very religious woman who, you know, in many ways sees adoption as like the thing you should be doing if you're like a believer who thinks that abortion is murder and all of those kinds of things. So I just feel like it'd be so yeah. hard for her not to see herself in this case. Yeah. I, I actually you know, feel like maybe we haven't spelled that out a lot that a, a lot of the parents that we're talking about here believe that adoption is how you get into heaven. The more kids you adopt, the more likely you are to go to heaven. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely the position of Jennifer and Chad Brackeen. So there's three couples, two of the couples couldn't have children on their own. And so I think we're, are all, we're also, well, I don't know if the Librettis are Christian. The Cliffords are, are were definitely Christian. Um, yeah. I don't think we ever really saw anything about the Librettis being Christian on their social no. or Mm-mm. anything, but um, the Cliffords are very Christian. And so, um, but I think they have kind of like a clear motivation of not being able to have children and like wanting to have a family and like other, Mm -hmm. like there just aren't children available for adoption. So you would think that like, if you just want to adopt a baby and you don't want to go through the heartbreak of like fostering a child and not being able to adopt them, that you wouldn't sign up for that. But Mm -hmm. I think that people are still signing up for that because those traditional paths to adoption have closed because there's just not right. enough kids. And so mm-hmm. what, I mean, I think one of the most shocking things I found, um, which is funny because it's like, it doesn't take that much digging. It's like right there on the surface, but um, all these private adoption agencies are sending their clients to foster care and telling yeah. them, and even like helping license them to be foster parents. Mm-hmm. Um, to As get a them pathway to, ad- to adoption. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't know all the numbers, but I hear all the time that there's like an, a surplus of black children that nobody wants to adopt. So that's what's really fucking cruel about it is that um, and actually what's like kind of um, doubly cruel because one of he's not involved anymore because now he's on the Arizona State Supreme Court. But one of the guys who is really instrumental in getting all this anti-equal litigation off the ground is a guy named Clint Bullock. Mm-hmm. And back in the 90s, like his um, 
the mantle he took up was that some, like, I think it was mostly led by Black social workers were starting to try and create, like, local policy. There wasn't a national policy, but, like, local policies around prioritizing placing Black children with Black families. Mm-hmm. And Bullock was like, this means, like, Black children are languishing in the system, da 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 And so this law came out of his whole effort. I mean, he obviously wasn't the only one who pushed for it, but he was one of the big people um, in the 90s called the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act. So you can't do that for Black children. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the law that made it easier for white people to adopt Black children didn't help Black children not spend longer times in foster care um, from the research that we looked at. Um, And then all those people who had been so concerned about the fate of Black children in foster care, of course, had like moved on because like it wasn't about the children Mm -hmm. ever. Um, Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think that that's like one of the things that's very cruel about foster care is like, um, when you look at removal rates, like extremely disproportionate for Black children and for Native children. So Black and Native children are way more likely to be removed um, from their families than white children. I think actually there's some data that native children have like a little like actually better outcomes like native kids are more likely to be placed with family they're less likely to age out of the system um they're less likely to end up in a group home so like some of those things where it's like you know you really don't want like that to happen with foster kids mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean like one study and it's been a while since i looked at this research but one study i found was talking about how like you know compared to white children black children in foster care when they're referred for like therapy or like services, they're like less likely to get those services. And so it's like, Mm. I mean, there's just like, it's just like racism in and out. Like the system is just so um, it's so biased in the, in who, who's being investigated by CPS, what kids are getting taken, but then also Mm. like what kids are like getting services and getting their needs met once they're in the system. And then what kids are getting kind of, um, just push the side. You know, what was like so gross and shocking to me in, in this story, uh, Rebecca was when you shared those, like the emails from adoption agencies where they would send out emails of like the kids that were available, you know, of a particular week or month or whatever. And they would describe the complexion of the kids. Oh. So they would, yeah. It of was the parents. Fucking gross. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so they say would of say, the parents, like, that's right. what the race. That's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. so they would, they would say, like, what the race and... of the parents were, and then, yeah. so, so they all, like, every, every, every email, if you were an adoptive mm-hmm. parent and you are thinking about adopting a baby, like, you have very little information, <laughs> A, like, these emails do not include that much information, but they all list the race of both parents. A lot of times the race was in the subject line um, mm-hmm. of the email. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. it's one, we saw one agency that sends out like the complexion of both parents. And so really like mm-hmm. one of the other big things that's happened in adoption is that um, before there was like access to abortion and the pill and stuff, a lot of white babies were placed for adoption. Um, and that was what white families desired. And then since women have had access to reproductive rights, um, and you know, like you, it's more okay to have a baby out of wedlock and like all that kind of stuff. Um, there's been this like first adoption agencies went abroad. And so it was like, you know, China or South Korea or Ethiopia. And now that, and then international adoption got shut down after a ton of scandals. And now Mm -hmm. that the same agencies have turned to foster care to find children to adopt. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that it's funny because people 
want to talk about like adoption as this like, well, I would adopt a child of like any race and like race isn't part of it. But it's like when you look at the data, it's absolutely part of it. Like the overwhelming mm-hmm. majority of people who adopt in the US are white. And the majority mm-hmm. of people who are adopted are people of color. Mm-hmm. And um, age plays into it a lot too, right? Like most people are looking for a newborn or at least a baby under the age of one. All yeah, of yeah. And that's one thing too that I think is, um, you know, like there are amazing foster parents out there who are doing like really, really, you know, like I don't mean to disparage folks who are like opening their home um, to like children in crisis. Um, but I think what is um, problematic about, you know, um, foster care not being used as a way to keep children safe, but being used as a way to find prospective adoptive parents, um, adoptive children, is that there's like a real mismatch in the type of children that people are looking to adopt and the children in foster care, you know, and the same thing happened during international adoption, you know, when there were scandals around children being taken through coercion or unethical and even like illegal practices, there were children who were like ill or had disabilities or who were older who are still waiting to be adopted. And you can kind of see the same thing starting to happen in the kind of foster to adopt system. Mm. Can you say a little bit more about what kids are people want to adopt and which ones they don't just to like make it super clear? Yeah. So, um, you know, trying to use data, um, the children that wait longer to be adopted are um, children who are older, um, sibling groups. So like if there's like two or three children that uh, are trying to stay together, um, children with disabilities, children with illnesses, um, children with trauma histories. Um, Yeah. And so age is a big factor in it, too. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. So considering that uh, the custody has already been settled in this case and there's no changes of outcome at stake, why would the court even take this case? And who do you think is set to benefit from the legal and political strategy if this succeeds? Big questions here. (laughs) Yeah, no, those are really important questions. I mean, so that's like one of the big questions about this case is like why is the supreme court even hearing it Mm -hmm. because exactly like what you said like normally in a lawsuit you want um you know what people call a controversy or like harm and redressability there's like all of these things but usually like the rules of civil procedure are like if you're suing the federal government to overturn a law like you have to be harmed and then the outcome of the lawsuit has to fix that harm but here everything is said and done Um, All of the underlying custody cases have been settled. Um, There's one case that's ongoing, but it's not legally part of the lawsuit because the kid was actually born after the lawsuit was filed and amended. Um, And so, yeah, that's that's a huge question of like, how do these plaintiffs have standing um, if, you know, for the most part, they got what they wanted. And even in the one case where they didn't get what they wanted, that adoption has like long been finalized. And so ICWA getting declared unconstitutional doesn't help that couple the Cliffords out at all. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's like, I. um, And sorry, just to interject here. And they have already adopted uh, other kids, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. We found that on their Instagram. Yeah. On their Instagram? yeah, yes. they adopted twin. <laughs> they adopted twin boys. I think from Colombia. So after yeah, um, they weren't mm-hmm. able to adopt child P, 
um, they adopted um, babies from abroad. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But but still kept up this fight. Yeah. Um, still. Yeah. 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 I know. And that's, I mean, that's also what's, um, yeah, it's, it's just incredible that, um, that the lawsuit is still going on. And I think really, you know, I think it gets underreported. I mean, you guys are, you guys cover this stuff and talk about it, but I mean, it really is just the route that it took to the Supreme court is a big part of the story of why it's still chugging along. Um, so the Brackeens live in the Northern district of Texas. And there's this like super, super, um, conservative kind of activist judge in that district that basically when the Texas solicitor general, like asks him to declare a law or a federal statute or an executive order unconstitutional. Um, he's like, here you go. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like basically, uh, that's yeah. like even the wall street journal has like accused judge Reed O'Connor of going too far. Like he's, he's that far out. Yeah, that's, and so they filed right. yeah. it in his, um, court. Um, he kind of like gave one of those rubber stamp opinions and then it was appealed to the fifth circuit, which is obviously like one of the more, if not the most conservative, circuit court um it actually the law was upheld with a three panel judge but then it heard on bonk and so that's kind of how it wound up at the supreme court and that's the same path that like all these lawsuits that we hear about are taking you know the student loan path like all of these lawsuits and so it's really venue shopping um is a big part of why this lawsuit got to where it was because other courts would have asked those questions that you're asking is, you know, do these plaintiffs even have standing? And what we saw the Fifth Circuit do is they they actually answered that question with information that was wrong. Um, and so an adoption that had actually been finalized, they claimed was still ongoing. Um, and so, yeah, so misinformation and venue shopping <laughs> is, is part yeah. of how this lawsuit is still going on. And big corporate law firms making friends with attorneys general. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that some? Um, yeah. Because yeah. I feel like you've done a ton of reporting on Raga. Oh man. They're, They're the worst. Favorite We've people. talked about it. Um, but, but, but I have to say, but let's rag on Raga after the ad break. Hot take is brought to you by bite. Mary, did you know that toothpaste is mostly full of gross stuff that you really don't want in your body? Yeah, I know that because you tell me all the goddamn time. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. You you swallow five to seven percent of your toothpaste every single time you brush your teeth. And most of that stuff has a lot of chemicals, artificial flavors, all kinds of nasty stuff, which is why... Bite made dry toothpaste tablets made with clean ingredients that are sulfate free, palm oil free, and glycerin free, and damn cute to begin with. Very I cute. I mean, it is. They they're so cute. The little jar that they come in is just a, a very pleasing addition to the bathroom sink and a nice replacement for the gunky toothpaste tubes that were on my sink before. Mm-hmm. I also I also really like how Bite tastes. It feels like a strong mint and you know you just kind of bite down get some water in there and brush like you normally would very easy mm-hmm. super easy seamless. to pack they don't seamless yeah they don't make a giant mess in your bag if you're traveling somewhere i also like that they're great 
Byte is offering our listeners 20% off your first order. Go to trybyte.com slash hot take or use the code hot take at checkout to claim this deal. That's T-R-Y-B-I-T-E dot com slash hot take. Hot Take is brought to you by Masterclass. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. They have tons of options. You can learn songwriting from John Legend. I feel like I would not pick it up, but still, it's an option. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You could improve your cooking skills with Gordon Ramsay. I'm actually really considering getting this for my husband, who has a giant obsession with Gordon Ramsay. Interesting. Because he is, despite what sounds like a posh English accent, he is actually Scottish. I'm outing you, Gordon Ramsay. He's a Scottish man who used to play for uh, the soccer team that my husband supports in Glasgow, Scotland. So he's like a rough Scottish guy at one point in his life. So how did his accent change? Or did he like always talk like that? No, he must. No way. There is no way he was walking around with that accent in Glasgow and not getting his ass beat. uh, No. (laughs) I don't think so, sir. I don't think so. Anyway, you could learn how to cook from Gordon Ramsay, who, after he played professional soccer, became a world famous chef who likes to shout at people. (laughs) I know, but he's also very good with kids. You ever see him yes, all like weirdly. the J- Master Chef Junior? He's so supportive to those kids. He's really sweet. I know, I know. They have over 180 classes from a range of world class instructors. So anything you've always wanted to learn is closer than you think. Each class is broken out into individual video lessons. They're usually around 10 minutes long. That does unfortunately mean that you cannot yell at Gordon Ramsay. Unfortunately. <laughs> You you can explore at your own pace, and each class is supported by downloadable materials, class guides, recipes, or more. Sessions, a new product from Masterclass, allows for a deeper dive into the lessons over a month-long period. Sessions include projects to submit to a teaching assistant for feedback, as well as the opportunity to learn alongside a community of peers which is cool. It's like an actual class. Mm -hmm. Masterclass is available on iOS, Android, desktop, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, and Roku. I highly recommend checking it out. It's a very, very cool gift to give to someone, more of an experience than a thing to pile up in their closet. Mm -hmm. This holiday, you can give one annual membership and get one free. That's awesome. Go to masterclass.com slash hot take today. That's masterclass.com slash hot take. Terms apply. Okay. Okay. So Raga is the Republican Attorneys General Association. They are a very powerful political force in the country. I feel like... um, we can never talk too much about them because they, they're the recipient of lots of money from different industries and companies. And in many cases, these are industries and companies that really attorneys general in any state who are supposed to be nonpartisan, by the way, um, are supposed to be regulating, right? They're supposed to be regulating these corporations and industries and applying the laws of the state to them. 
But uh, what they often do instead is just coordinate lawsuits on their behalf. <laughs> and Texas is the worst at it. I mean, Texas is sort of like a real linchpin of this strategy because pretty much anything that the sort of pro-corporate forces on the right want to see happen in the courts, they can take to Ken Paxton and he will file some kind of a constitutional case. In this case, Ken Paxton's office um, was showing up in family court in Tarrant County, Texas, which... Is wild, you know, like the the idea. I think we we talked about it in the podcast too. That like this this would be like if you were getting a divorce and the attorney general showed up on your your spouse's side oh, in court. Okay, like yeah. that puts in perspective. That's like how weird it is, you know, for this to be happening. But they were there right from the beginning. They tried to get other states involved. Um, they weren't super successful, actually, which is is interesting. But still, you know, they managed to to really kind of set this case on a path to the Supreme Court, um, which is kind of what Raga does in general. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's wild. It's really wild. But Rebecca, can you talk about like, what are some of the, the, the various groups and people that would benefit by ICWA being overturned? Yeah, absolutely. And I was, I was just going to add the other thing that we found in our reporting um, was that it was actually the lawyer from Gibson Dunn um, that let the attorney general's office know about the case. And so That's and right. when you look at Gibson Dunn and their Texas offices, um, the staff between the attorney general's office and the Gibson Dunn, Dallas and Houston offices is basically like a revolving door. And so we yeah. see like the way that... Um, you know, it's all, it's like, it's all just like the same people. <laughs> and so yeah. um, there's this very cozy, cozy relationship that this corporate law firm has um, with the AG's office. And yeah, I've got them involved in this case. But yeah, yeah I mean, so um, the people that stand to benefit are the folks who come up against tribes, you know, um, and are litigating issues uh, with tribes and the two industries um, that come up against tribes a lot are, you know, the gaming industry. Um, so tribes, um, tribal casino revenues represent about half of all gaming revenues in the United States. It's a big, big market. Um, IGRA, which is actually limited tribal casinos and gave states more power, but people like to say that it did the opposite. Um, but under um, certain federal rules, um, states, um, basically, if states want a slice of tribal gaming revenues, they can compact with tribes and often in exchange, um, the states don't allow other types of gaming to happen in those states. And so there are big markets that non-native, big areas of the country where non-native casino developers can't uh, build casinos. Um, and that's really what their uh, Gibson Dunn filed a case in January, arguing that those the laws that are like that in the state of Washington are um, unconstitutional for the exact same reason that ICWA is unconstitutional. So Maverick Gaming, um, Gibson Dunn's casino client in that case, and arguably their other casino clients um, would directly benefit 
Um, and then the other big industry that comes up against tribes a lot is oil. And I think that mm-hmm. that is a little bit less of like an A to B, you know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. like gaming. But I, I think one thing I've learned and Amy, like, obviously you've done like decades more of reporting on this than I do, where like, sometimes I have like, a, like the oil industry um, has been really um, like just going hard against tribes here in Oklahoma and our mm-hmm. affirmed reservation status. And I, I'm just like, why? Like we actually don't really have any regulatory authority for like a bajillion reasons. Mm-hmm. But I think the oil industry um, is afraid of possible regulations or a future yeah. where something might happen. And so I think it's preempting um uh, like preempting the possibility that tribes could regulate oil. Um, at mm. least I think that that's what's happening in Oklahoma. Yeah, that's so interesting. Well, and also, you know, definitely oil and gas companies have come up against tribes when it comes to protests. They, I think they really see tribes as a big threat um, and in general, you know, like the the Standing Rock protests really catalyzed a whole new wave of resistance against the oil and gas industry that that had kind of died off before that. Um, yeah, that action, you know, so that prompted the passage of all of these anti-protest, you know, quote unquote criminal or uh, critical infrastructure protection laws. <laughs> I think you had it yeah. right the and, first time, I mean, actually. Criminal. criminal. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But like the the um the guy in Oklahoma who first introduced that law, he straight up said in um, you know, in the hearing for it that like, look what happened at Standing Rock. We don't want that happening here. Yeah. You know, blah blah blah. Yeah. So I think um yeah, I don't know. I, I actually think that's yeah. a good point to take it a step back. So in some ways, I think it's really fitting that our last guest for Hot Take is an Indigenous journalist because the major news organizations really do a terrible job at covering Native communities. And also, you know, the climate crisis starts with Indigenous genocide and, and colonialism. So mm-hmm. I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about why do you think major news organizations do such a poor job at covering Native communities and Whoa. what could they be doing better? <laughs> if you just had like, we have? we have exactly three hours for this question alone. <laughs> that's, that's enough. That's enough. I can, I can, I can, I can squeeze it into three. Okay. <laughs> um, oh gosh. I think it's a lot of issues. Um. Yeah, I mean, that's like, this is my bone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, this is my bone. Um, I, I mean, I think that, um, I think that anti-Indigenous racism functions through erasure. And so I think that Native people are systematically erased from the news, from pop culture, just anytime, you know, you're consuming any kind of media, whether or not it's news media, um, you rarely, rarely, rarely see Native people. And then even more rarely see like accurate and um, respectful portrayals. And so I think that it's bigger than any one outlet or any one um, paper. I think it's national and it's systemic but that doesn't mean that outlets are off the hook right you know and so I think that we I think what a lot of outlets have done 
is that they look at it as like a diversity problem and that they need to work on their diversity. And I think that that's the wrong approach and why very few of them have improved their coverage at all and still have um, coverage that's just really awful. Um, and I think that people need to approach it like it's a journalism problem um, because, it <laughs> yeah. is, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a journalism problem. Like there was a story from the New York Times. Um, this writer named Jan Hoffman has written about the Brackeen case, I think like three feature length articles now. Yeah. And her last article was bonkers. Like she, mm. um, she reported as if like, Amy, you'll appreciate this, that like the Brackeens just won custody of ALM because the Navajo family changed their mind. <laughs> Oh my like, God. And it's like what we found in our reporting was that they went to family court with a giant corporate law firm and the AG of their state, and then they won custody, which is like, right. that, you know, they showed up at the legal arsenal. Like, ugh, it's just it's so gross. And then, yeah. um, yeah, that article had so many problems with it. Like she listed this like right wing group who's like the founders, like previous organizing work has been labeled like anti-indigenous hate, like as, alongside like she like listed the groups who support ICWA and then the groups who don't and she listed this like extreme right-wing group like on the opposite side of like the American Medical Association and like oh the my American God. and it's like one this like right-wing extremist oh. like hate group should like not be getting like name checked in the New York Times and mm -hmm. also like these are not two sides of the same coin like what are you doing um yeah. and so wow. and and that's just like happened over and over like um the washington post reported that we had this case in oklahoma where like our reservations were affirmed and like criminal jurisdiction over some of the crimes in the state shifted from the state to either tribes or the federal government and the governor was running around saying that 76 thousand past convictions would be overturned hmm. and robert mm -hmm. barnes who's the supreme court correspondent for the washington post like put that number in an article at the time it was like three times the total prison population in the state and it was 64 <laughs> times the native <laughs> prison population from the counties impacted by the decision and those were like two numbers oh. that were like very easy to find and like we sent so like in the because the Oklahoma we asked the governor's office we were like where'd you get those numbers and they're like oh well, we got them from district attorneys and so we just sent like an open records request to the district attorneys to be like hey where'd you get these numbers and the district attorneys who got back to us were like we didn't ever send the governor any numbers like we didn't we don't know what you're talking about and so it appears that the governor had fabricated that number and so it's just like, that's like not a diversity problem. That's like you not doing your fucking job, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. like if a public official gives you data and you right. do a quick, like reality check, like, does this data make sense given the context? No. Okay. Well, where did it come from? And like, you know, right. it takes some legwork, but it's not that much. And so I just think that it's like, I think it's a journalism problem where like outlets, like none no national outlet no national outlet is like meeting the standards of journalism when it comes to their coverage of indigenous communities it's not timely it's not reported by people who like know the material and have a knowledge base it's rarely put into a proper context 
Um, oftentimes the coverage is missing. So like all these outlets who are like, we have our person that's been covering health and is like this expert and has, you know, like how they all like, right. I think of like how the New York Times like brags about their reporters expertise and how long they've been client, oh you know, God. covering blah, blah, blah. Like they just, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. They, it's like, they don't have that person. It's like the dude that lives in Colorado, you know, but we'll get him to write a couple <laughs> stories about native people. Like it just is like, mm-hmm. they don't have that person. They don't have that desk. They haven't invested resources. They haven't invested any resources into our community. And they also don't listen when native journalists give feedback. So they've just shown over and over again, that they're not interested in having adequate coverage and in having accurate coverage. And that's kind of where we're at. I mean, the New York times, um, like and the Native American Journalists Association are actually in this like ex- like kind of weird standoff right now that again no one's covering like you would think that if like a professional journalist association had like was in such a bad place with the national outlet it would be talked about more but it's like like really like the outlets that have covered it have been from Canada <laughs> you know like it's just like, didn't they so um didn't they like uninvite the New York Times from yeah conference (laughs) and then the new york times asked for their like 55 dollars registration fee back (laughs) oh my god that's such a bitch move that's such a bitch move it was so bad it's so bad it's so bad and it was after like nausea like did this giant study of like basically just like looking at how much racist stereotypes of indigenous people showed up in New York times coverage. And they did this huge study of like years of their coverage and showed that racist stereotypes were showing up in most of the coverage. And again, the New York times like didn't do anything like just literally didn't like do anything to change that. And so hmm. it's just, it's, unprofessional Mm. it's it's not a diversity problem it's a journalism problem you know it's just not Mm -hmm. you know it's not meeting the basic standards of journalism around timely accurate (laughs) Um, yeah 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 um I know I've heard you say this before and um I think it's very very true not that I think all readers and listeners should care about indigenous issues regardless of the fact that it will definitely also affect them at some point but it will also affect them like i, I you know I've, I've heard you say that indigenous issues are like the canary in the coal mine and and you know when when the government starts to fuck with indigenous rights like they're coming for years next mm-hmm. can you um unpack that a little bit more and kind of walk people through why like yes this is your issue too whether you are an enrolled member of a federal tribe or not yeah I mean I would even say like the Supreme Court you know I think a lot of people are having this um wake up moment of being alarmed by the power grab that is going on with the Supreme Court right now Mm -hmm. and um how far this court is willing to go and that's yeah. a reality that Native people have been living with since the 70s, mm-hmm. you know, um, really since the late 70s, if the Supreme Court doesn't like where the law and the Constitution gets them in a federal Indian law case, they just make shit up. And <laughs> um, and so I think even like the moment that people are having 
realizing like, oh, like the federal judiciary has a lot of power and actually power to change policy in a way that we maybe wouldn't have thought the court had policy to change. Like we wouldn't have thought the court had this much power maybe 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Um, and so I think that's absolutely a warning. And then too, I mean, I just think that um, there's this great legal scholar named Maggie Blackhawk who talks about how we really need to think about colonialism as a constitutional problem, that it's like colonialism is a hot, like it's very baked into our constitution. Yes. Um, and we need to think about that. And you can see um, her scholarship on this topic is great, but you can see all these ways that the area of law um, created to dispossess indigenous people and to limit the human rights of indigenous people has been used against other people um, at what she calls the margins of American empire. So like enemy combatants in the war on terror or separating families at the border, like these ideas of these people who are absolutely impacted by um, the American colonial system, you know, people who live in Guam or Puerto Rico, but aren't given full citizenship. That is an area of law that the U.S. really created um, through the acquisition of indigenous people's lands, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I, there's so much, there's so much. And, and I would really say too, like, I think that this case, you know, it, it's probably not going to get as much press attention as a lot of other cases this term. Um, but it really should. I mean, it's such a test for the Supreme Court in kind of every way that you could test the court. I mean, how wedded is the court to the Constitution? How wedded is the court to its own precedent? How wedded um, is the court also just to like really basic things like the truth and facts? <laughs> and also, you know, like, and even just like, the rules of civil procedure, you know, that whole yeah. conversation we had about standing, like, you mm -hmm. know, it's mm -hmm. like, they, there are all these cases now where you're like, wait a minute, like, the lady who says she can't make websites for gay people actually has like never made a wedding website before. So this is all like a hypothetical, like it just like, we right. keep these cases that where the harm that's eroding protections for another group of people, the harm that the person bringing the plaintiff experience, they didn't actually experience. <laughs> right, so, right. Um, you know. I didn't know so, yeah. you could go to court for stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, you, well, you should be able to. Some people would say you were not supposed to. Yeah. Well, clearly you can. Yeah. I mean, uh, do you think I could get away with it? I'm black. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, Mary. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Just bootstraps. I mean, just bootstraps. I'm just saying, I, I got some people I would like to legally fuck with. Um. Yeah. Oh, man. No, that's what's so, yeah. That's, but, and this is well, like and, in that line of cases too of, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway. I think, I think it's important too to, um, to note that like that doesn't happen on accident either, right? Like in addition to venue shopping, these, um, entities that we're talking about that kind of construct these cases, they go looking for the perfect plaintiffs um, too, right? They go looking yeah. for someone who can be the, the lead plaintiff that they can build this whole case around. Like the plaintiffs don't come looking for them 
It's the yeah. other way around, you know? So you have not only, like, the Texas Attorney General but and Gibson Dunn, but also all of these big right-wing organizations like the Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation and the Pacific Legal Foundation and the Bradley Foundation and the Goldwater Institute, this whole network of right-wing-funded um, think tanks that really th- have a legal activism strategy and go looking mm-hmm. for... Um, people and and cases that they can bring that will let them challenge some part of the constitution that they want to challenge. They're not like real cases. Mm. Yeah. It's gross. Very much so. Well, there's still more to talk about because we really want to get into land back and what that really means. Um, And we will do that after we pay a couple of bills. Take is brought to you by Haya. Most children's vitamins are filled with five grams of sugar and can contribute to a variety of health issues. Not really what you want in a vitamin, guys. Not exactly. Sugar and junk that makes your kids sick. Haya, on the other hand, is made with zero sugar, zero gummy junk, but it actually tastes great and it's perfect for picky eaters. My kids think that they taste just like Smarties. So <laughs> that's awesome. Formulated with the help of nutritional experts, Haya is pressed with a blend of 12 organic fruits and veggies and then supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals, including vitamin D, B12, C, zinc, folate, and lots of others to help support immunity, energy, brain function, mood, concentration, teeth, bones, and more. Haya is designed for kids of all ages and sent straight to your door so parents have one less thing to worry about. It also comes in like this incredibly cute little capsule thing that you put the uh, the vitamins in. And then once you get that the first time, they just send you little refills so you don't have to mess with like throwing out medicine bottles or keeping them around and trying to find something to do with them. <laughs> I love how much cute packaging has a power over you. It really does. I'm a total sucker for cute packaging. <laughs> but I like these ones because they're they're not plastic. They're not disposable. They look cute. You can have them on your counter. And yeah, they're great. We've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. You can get 50%, 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, you have to go to HayaHealth.com slash hot. That's important. The deal is not available on the regular website. Go to H I Y A H E A L T H dot com slash hot and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. Hot Take is brought to you by Idealist.org. Have your Sunday scaries turned into Monday melancholies and too bad it's only Tuesdays and whiny Wednesdays? And you get the point. Uh- <laughs> This sucks Thursday. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Fuck off Fridays. You know, we could do this all day. It's time for you to visit idealist.org to search thousands of jobs that you will love. You deserve to find work that earns you a paycheck and helps build a better world. Over the last 25 years, idealist.org has helped millions of people find jobs with purpose, featuring jobs at nonprofits, socially conscious companies, and businesses hiring for socially responsible positions. Idealist.org can help you ditch the Sunday scaries for good and all those other sorts of syndromes that we described. Scary days. Yeah. Yes. 
<laughs> want advice on how to succeed in your career? No matter where you work, the idealist.org career advice blog offers everything you need to know about standing out after submitting your resume, acing the interview, managing up, and achieving work-life balance. Career advice from idealist.org will make sure you're prepared to chart a course through the career you've always dreamed about. So forget the gig economy and drop the daily grind. Go to idealist.org slash work and apply for your dream job today. Life is short. Love your job. Actually, the job that got me into climate work in earnest, I found it on idealist.org. Okay, so super basic first question. Uh, Rebecca, what is Lambeck? Can you just spell it out for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, oh, it's a lot of things. Um, <laughs> it's a hashtag. It's a rallying cry. <laughs> it's movement. It's a slogan. It's a tattoo. It's, uh, it's a tattoo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a hot, I haven't like fact checked this personally, but I've like asked a few people and I think it I think it was started by indigenous youth actually in Canada. Um, and then it started to really spread. I think I started seeing it. Oh gosh, COVID blurs everything. Yeah. But I think it was like 2019 or 2020 where I really started to see, um, a lot of people using it. And so, um, yeah, I think that's you know, about right. I think I start seeing it around that time too. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think there are, um, property owners who are thinking about returning land to indigenous nations and working on that. I think that amount of land that's actually that's happened with is very small, (laughs) but I think it is like important, you know, um, there's other like bigger federal policies. So, um, there's, yeah. And so I think, um, you know, like we had our, uh, the Supreme court decision that affirmed our reservation, And so um, that was about 19 million acres here in the state of Oklahoma that had not been considered tribal land or Indian country um, that since 2020 and 2021 has been affirmed by a Supreme Court case and then subsequent decisions. And yeah, so I think I think we need to work on actual land there. uh, There was a great piece in the Atlantic by David Troyer about the idea of um, that the national parks should be returned to Native nations and that maybe Mm -hmm. Native nations should actually be the ones stewarding um, public lands in the U.S., Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I know under the Biden administration, there's been like more consultation and stuff, but it's not quite um, just like handing it over. Yeah. Um, well, there's also and so those are. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to mention Deb Holland at the Department of the Interior as well. I would think that would have something to do with more conversations, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And she's done stuff like there was a lot of um, place names in the US that were using like an old racial slur for indigenous women. And she spearheaded renaming all, you know, the lake and the valley and the whatever Mm -hmm. um, that was named those things. Um, Yeah. And I would say too, like, I think that um, I think land is important, but land is a piece of the pie. I mean, land is the thing that um, a lot of other things flow through. So every time we've had our land rights infringed upon, we also see, you know, the loss of language, the loss of culture, the loss of sovereignty. Like you can't, you can't tease those things apart. And I think the restoration um, is also all of those things together. And so, um, you know, there's like a shirt that says like land back, culture back, ceremony back. Um, And so there's also a lot of work to do 
to reclaim um, those other aspects that are that are really important to the health of indigenous communities. And the other thing I'll add too is there's the actual like acreage and physical land, but then there's also the sovereignty that tribes can exercise on that land mm. that actually has been extremely limited unilaterally by the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1978, the Supreme Court ruled that tribes cannot criminally prosecute non-natives who commit crimes on our land. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the in the 80s, the Supreme Court, um, in a really like complicated and convoluted way, really curtailed um, civil jurisdiction. So civil jurisdiction is like permitting and zoning and, um, you know, the right to like sue somebody in your court and stuff like that. And that got really curtailed um, by the Supreme Court in the 80s. And again, like those were decisions that like, didn't have like really strong legal foundation it was kind of the court Mm. going out there and being like well tribes you know non-natives can't can't be prosecuted in tribal court that wouldn't be fair Hmm. and so kind of like we got which has led straight to this the missing and murdered indigenous women problem right yeah Uh, like which i think so a, a i feel like both of these things relate to the oil and gas industry as well because so many of the the missing and murdered indigenous women cases come from man camps that are tied to building pipelines or working oil fields or things like that. But also the civil thing too, like uh, actually the, there's a super interesting case. um, It was in tribal court in Minnesota. And I think they're filing one in Michigan too, kind of invoking uh, certain treaty rights around rights of nature to try to block some pipelines too. And they're, they're butting up against this whole thing of like, are you, or aren't you allowed to bring civil cases in tribal court? And like, there's, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And what you're supposed to be able to, if the actions of the like non-native corporation or person threatens the health and welfare of the tribe, but mm-hmm. courts have interpreted that to mean never. <laughs> you would think that it would apply, um, but uh. often it doesn't. And so, yeah, so just to, it, when I think about land back, I think about actual like physical land, but then I also think about the sovereignty that tribes can exercise on that land and the mm-hmm. ways that that has been chipped away um, and also needs to be restored. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's actually a, a good um segue into the next thing we wanted to talk about, which is like land practices. So, you know, there has been, I think we talked about this last time you were on too. There's been some movement towards um, really like giving tribes more control over how land is managed as well. And there's been some recent laws passed that, um, that do that at the state level as well. But then, you know, we were kind of thinking like, well, that's great, but also it's kind of annoying to be expected to to like fix, you know, several decades of, of degradation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like here's your land back, but it's way more damaged than it was. Sorry. Um, so yeah, I'm just curious what you think about that and like that whole kind of complicated knot. Yeah. And I'll be honest, like I've, some of that stuff I'm not like very up to date I know that there were some announcements around like efforts to like co-manage public lands like the Mm -hmm. Biden administration just had their like um 
big summit with tribal nations and I I'm like so I get very like tunnel vision (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) I can tell you everything about like one thing (laughs) yeah yeah no worries I'm like not really up to date on everything that's going on with that but yeah I mean I think that um I mean, I think that a lot of, you know, if you just even look at like fire management, right? Like that's like the example that everybody always uses. But um, Mm -hmm. it's true that like indigenous nations had like practices of like controlled burns, like um, our word for fall in Cherokee is actually like also um, the word for like burning stuff (laughs) Mm. Um, because it's like, you know, when we do it. And so, um, yeah, I think that um, there are a lot of like, and I think too, like we have this like really um, idea that like there's this really deep seated racist idea that I think helps people feel like less bad about genocide that like the U.S. was this like wilderness and indigenous communities actually like interacted with and manipulated and changed nature all over the place. Um, And so it wasn't like, I think in Western thinking, there's sort of like the city and then the wilderness and the wilderness is like untouched by man. Um, And that's, I think that's like a very Western idea. And so, um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of um, indigenous land practices and obviously like also like very deep knowledge about the places that different tribes are from. I think what would really, um, I think policies that would really move the needle forward on that would be um, thinking about opening up public lands to co-management with indigenous nations. Yeah. Yeah. Or just being managed. Delete the co. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Anyway. Okay. So one of the things that we, um, that we were, looking at um is this new there's a new policy in california that just passed in october and it is um it's giving five tribes the right to manage and protect uh around 200 miles of coastland it's land that was part of their ancestral lands it's not all of their land but part of it um and they are it sounds like working with the USDA and the Forest Service um, and and really kind of taking over from, from them. So, yeah, I do wonder if, like, what you think of that as a model. But also, like, whether, I don't know. I just feel like it's like, well, um, like, to your point just a minute ago, why should any of the U.S. government agencies really need to be involved anymore at all? It's like, look, you failed you did a bad job. <laughs> like let someone yeah. else try, you know? Yeah. Um, um yeah. I mean, you know, like sometimes things are a process. And so yeah. if there's a process, um, you know, I think that that's also okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, there's so many, there's just so, I mean, there's so many sacred sites um and important places that are within the public lands like I I Mm. I haven't been back to like our homelands that much in my life I've only been twice or three times and Mm. um I went recently like last month and uh you know just just going to some of these spaces that are in the um the oh what is the name of that park the Smoky Mountains I think it's called Mm -hmm. Blue Ridge National Park yeah, but there yeah. are some sites that are really significant to us as Cherokee people that are in that park. 
um, you know, one of them they built this like giant observation tower on. It's just like very interesting, like yeah. also like the signage and how I mean there's just like so much room for improvement, even just like in mm-hmm. the places where um you know, maybe those sites aren't being taken care of or like even how they're talked about and how that history is talked about. And so I think mm-hmm. it would be a really different way um, for our country to think about public lands. Like if if there was more stewardship and more power and more say really with indigenous nations and how those lands were managed. Mm. Yeah, especially in, in the case of, of tribes like Cherokee that were moved from their ancestral lands to places yeah. that bear very little resemblance like yeah. I, I mean going from the blue ridge mountains to the, the plains of oklahoma is a pretty major shift really <laughs> yeah. and, you know yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 and we have i mean the ozarks kind of come in um so we have like little fingers of the ozarks here in eastern mm-hmm. oklahoma but yeah it's not it's not the mountains it's yeah it's definitely not the mountains and we live you know we lived in like the Tennessee Valley and then and parts of like what is present day like northern Georgia and Mm. so yeah and there's east eastern band is still there and so um you know they're right there um in Cherokee North Carolina and so some Mm -hmm. you know some folks have remained and they're still there but yeah it's definitely like um yeah I mean I think um there's a lot of like I said, knowledge that indigenous nations have from, you know, the places and the lands that we are from that obviously in this moment of uh, rapidly, infinitely, exponentially increasing, compounding climate crisis Mm -hmm. um, is useful. And I think that there's sort of growing recognition of that. And I think that we need um, policy change that matches that recognition. And so um yeah i mean i think you kind of you kind of can't disentangle um fighting climate change away from the rights of indigenous people and um you know it's not a one for one like you know there are tribes that drill oil like you know tribes that are you know everywhere across the globe but overall Mm -hmm. we see that um when it comes to stewarding um whether it's like biodiversity or forests that indigenous people um, across the globe are doing that um, more than any other group. Yeah. yeah. I can't imagine what it must feel like to be an indigenous person watching everybody be like, you know what? Maybe we should do control burns in the in the forest now. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. you think? <laughs> but it's like, it's like that with everything. It's like, we think yeah. that trauma is passed down in the DNA. And it's like, well, yeah, dude. Yeah, no like, shit. we've been saying that. Or like, you know, I mean, it's just like that with everything. It's like, these plants. Yeah. Do you have, you know, yeah. like, um, yeah, I mean, it's just every science. <laughs> yeah, and, and not to yeah. add just like ad nauseum examples, but I also remember that study that came out, I think it was 2019 or 2018, that was like, when indigenous genocide happened, it changed the climate. It's like, oh, really? You thought you could just kill yeah. off a whole lot of people who are part of an ecosystem and nothing would happen? Right. Yeah. Like, how is that surprising? Yeah. Right. I remember I I interviewed a guy, oh, this is maybe like four or five years ago now, like when um, the first round of the protests at Mauna Kea were happening in Hawaii, mm. so not the most recent, but there was like ones earlier than that. And um, and I was talking to him about it and, and he was like, you know, I really hate the whole framing of indigenous yeah. people as being like anti-science because yeah. he's like the whole reason that like we treat Mauna Kea as sacred is that it's like we knew that 
the water running off of the mountain was going to get into the wetlands and into like all of the farmland below and that it was important to keep that water (laughs) clean. And he's like, it was like watershed science. We just had like a different way of explaining it. But like, it doesn't make our, you know, our explanation like myth and yours is science it's it's and like i I see it over and over and over again right Um, they think indigenous wisdom is just like vibes it's ridiculous yeah Yeah. stories yeah yeah Yeah. anyway and now it's now that's the supreme court just vibes no law yeah exactly (laughs) just vibes no law that's the perfect um subject for this that's the perfect title thank you so much rebecca i appreciate that yeah i i i have to say it's all from strict scrutiny they 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 say that um yeah where they're like just vibing yeah Kavanaugh's it's just really true. He he's not worried about the Constitution or the law. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He doesn't need yeah. to be. God. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us again and honoring us as our last guest. Yes. Thank oh you. The I'm, best. So, I'm so sad it's coming to an end. But I know yeah. that you all do like a hundred bajillion things. So yes. I'm sure. Um, yeah. It's really cool. Um, to be with you guys again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Hot Take is a Crooked Media production. It's produced by Ray Pang and mixed and edited by Jordan Cantor. Our music is by Vasilis Votopoulos. Leo Duran is our senior producer. And our executive producers are Mary Anais Hegler, Michael Martinez, and me, Amy Westervelt. Special thanks to Sandy Gerard, Ari Schwartz, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support and to Amelia Montooth for digital support. You can follow the show on Twitter at Real Hot Take and subscribe to Crooked Media's video channel at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.com.